Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Joshua Kahn with the news. A public service announcement. Fall has come to dairy once again, the time of year where we anxiously await the opening of our favorite seasonal attraction. That's right, Arinyes' Corn Maze and Pomegranate Orchard opens this weekend. The owners have requested families stop bringing infants along, but if you must, please leave with as many as you brought. Donations are no longer being accepted. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Constant readers. Hello. <laughs> and today we are covering the finale of Rose Matter. So spoilers for the book ahead. And we have CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Last episode, things came to a head when Norman attacked a couple of our daughters and sisters, Cynthia and Gert. This ended in the best face-off ever <laughs> with Gert giving Norman a taste of his own medicine in a unexpected way. We left off with Rosie confronting her fear of talking to cops. And now we come to the unavoidable. I don't fault us for this, you guys, but we so far in this book have kind of glossed over all of the Norman parts, partially because he's a horrible monster and it's hard to spend time with him. And I think also in part because there's so much of him in this book. It's almost like it's as much his story as it is Rosie's. And I don't like that. It feels wrong. So I think we're rebelling against it. (laughs) Rightfully so. I don't think we can get away with it at this point. We kick things off with Norman escaping from the picnic. Last episode, we talked about how he was beginning to lose his mind. And now we very quickly see him becoming something other than human, an actual, literal monster. It starts when a kid steps into his path as he is making his escape. He, in passing, rips the bull mask that this kid has in his hand. Is it on his head or is it It, in his hand? It's on his head. It's on his head. He rips out some some of his hair. hair, Right, yes. (laughs) Pulls it right off his head. And I love that he, like, pulls it off and uses it as a disguise and then once he's in the car and he takes it off and looks at it, he's like, oh, it's a bowl with flowers. This is stupid. I, I do think it's funny that he he uses it as a disguise when the whole book he's been like, disguises never work. They just make you more noticeable. <laughs> right. And then when he finally is like, fuck it, got to get out. He picks this goofy cartoon bowl mask, uh, which becomes the most threatening scary fucking thing in the book. Yes. And the most unexpected kind of goofy, horrifying it, thing in the book. It. This is my thought. It should not work. It should. Yes. It, absolutely. It should be <laughs> like I almost, when he first starts using it as a puppet. Yeah. I was like, is this hilarious? And it is. <laughs> but also... Norman's state of mind at this point, it, he doesn't have it anymore. He was already, we like you said, CM, we glossed over a lot of Norman stuff. But he was already, like, 
barely tethered to sanity. He was experiencing blackouts and it's Mm -hmm. described as his mind taking a skip and then he'll suddenly come back into awareness and he has done things that are very much in line with what he needs to do, mm-hmm. which is also kind of terrifying. So yeah, he's slowly going. Crazy. Yeah. Er- it's really, really scary. The point is that at the first time it happens, he talks to the mask and the mask responds in a voice that's not his. So he already is creating a voice or is he? See, that's what I wanted to ask you guys is, is the voice anything supernatural? Because at a certain points, it seems to know things that he shouldn't know. Let me answer your question with a question. <laughs> Is practical sensible something supernatural? No. Then I'm going to say no. Okay, two huh. points kind of jumping off of that. Miss Practical Sensible. We That's Rosie's one of her inner voices. Did yes. we ever talk about Norman's mispractical sensible? His father? No, because it it it's gross. It's gross it's because gross. the first time it shows up is uh when he's running from uh from hurting Gert, well, being hurt by Gert. Getting Gert really hurt. <laughs> fucking bad. Arguably, that Gert broke his tether to Sandy. Yes. Like, oh, absolutely. Sure. Worse than his broken ribs and pulverized nose. <laughs> that is what finally broke him. I agree with you guys that the those, you know, mispractical sensible, both mm-hmm. of their versions of those are not. But I think I mentioned right away in the first episode that I thought that that other voice of Rosie was tied to the picture, was something supernatural. And based on what happens when he... Spoiler, steps into the picture. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. I think it is. But he also, he knows things he shouldn't know because he has a knack for getting inside Rosie's head because they're connected like we've talked about. But then again, is that connection supernatural? But also the things that the bull says, yes, they're things that the bull shouldn't know. But these are also worst case scenarios that Norman has already said. Which means yeah, they're not true. necessarily because the bull isn't necessarily telepathic in saying this is what's happening. Mm, These are already thoughts he's for expressed. For exa- example, one of the things the bull tells him is she's not here because she's on a date with a man. Exactly. Which, when I first read it, was like, oh, how does he know that? But yeah, you're right. That is already that's Norman's uh, biggest fear or his biggest one of his biggest insecurities. Yeah. So it could very easily be it filling in information. Anyway, uh, back to <laughs> uh, I just wanted to bring up uh, Norman's inner voice and how he calls him daddy. That's I just wanted <laughs> wanted to make sure everyone knew that because if I have to know it, then <laughs> the, you do. Yeah. Well, it's weird too that the bull is telling him these worst case scenario things because previously we've seen him have these thoughts. And push them away like that's impossible. That is not her. She would never do that. So the relationship with the bull is is really interesting. His name's Ferdinand. Ferdinand. Ferd. Ferd. Old Ferd. Um, Ben, you mentioned that he starts using the bull as a puppet. Let's talk about the best scene that almost for a second made me 
think Norman might be a fun guy. <laughs> the car? The yeah. Car? When, he, when he's at a, a red light <laughs> and realizes that he's talking to a mask and turns and sees a driver next to him and forgets that his face is covered in blood. And he's naked <laughs> from the waist up. <laughs> yeah. I, if there was a film version of this, if they omitted that scene, I would walk out of the theater because <laughs> I thought it was glorious. Just imagine that scene playing out from the other guy's perspective. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly yeah. how you'd have to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to mention one more thing because I just love this. It's so nice. So sorry. It's back to the inner voice thing. Gert starts to get in his head. He hears her voice. Oh, I love that she got into his head so hard. And he's like trying to push it away and can't. And he has this thought of, I think I'm going to hear this for the rest of my life. He also thinks he's going to smell urine for the rest of his life. Which is great. Also, (laughs) being the total piece of shit that he is, uh, he does um, compare this what Gert to did to him. Uh, he says it was like she had raped him. Fuck that. Yep. No, no, fuck you. You piece of shit. <laughs> you got peed on. Get over it. Baby. <laughs> That's called a golden. Shower. Yeah. Some people pay for that. Norman. Some people pay for that. Norman decides to go after sweet. Never did a thing wrong in her life. Lover, Pam. Well, Pam, we've we've established that Pam is his ace in the hole because he's made the connection, but he knows where to find her. So he said he wasn't going to play that card unless he needs it. Well, now that he got his ass kicked, he needs it. Mm-hmm. And he knows that she's not going to the concert because he's kind of been stalking her and he's staying at the hotel where she's working. And we're going to come back to that. It's, I just hate it. I hate every time he kills someone because you really know... With one exception, all of the people that he's hurt. And it's brutal and it's shocking, not just in the the brutal way and that he kills them and the fact that it's a murder, but the way they initiate, especially Pam, because uh, it describes him driving back to his hotel and he is clearly out of his mind at this point. And he parks. And then suddenly he just has her. There's one of these time skips. And we do not have the the, the suspense of him hunting, which is good. Because no, the less time we spend with him, the better. <laughs> but just the sudden like you think oh maybe how does pam get oh nope she doesn't get out of this because we're in his perspective but the mm-hmm. things that happen to them we experience it as though like we are as surprised as they are because mm-hmm. we haven't been with him setting that up because he hasn't been with himself setting yeah. that up so it's like we're both with the antagonist and the victim yeah the what this reminded me of uh the scene i always think of from uh memento which I assume you both have seen. Of course. Yep. The when he comes to sitting on a toilet holding a bottle of wine, he's like, Am I drunk? Because he's holding <laughs> and he doesn't remember. That's what all of Norman's time jumps always made me think of. Is Norman constantly finds himself in the middle of initiating an action when he comes back. And we in his head have to play catch up, just like he is, of 
right, I'm doing this thing. Apparently, I did all this to get here, but we're here now, so let's go with it. Yeah, it's it's awful, um, especially what he does to Pam. Yeah, so he surprises Pam, and she is begging him not to hurt her, and she's begging him to use a condom because she doesn't want to get an STD. And I, we feel terrible because we're like, oh my god, like the least he's going to do is rape you. Yeah. And like you'd be lucky at this point if that's all he did. He's definitely going to kill her. But Pam gets the upper hand well, in a horrible way. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole scene caught me off guard because mm-hmm. once again, it's played not for laughs, but in this very unsettling, almost comedic manner because Norm is not just like interrogating her, trying to find out where um rosie is the the puppet is he is playing like good cop bad cop with his own hand and it should not work it should be a goofy like come on but it's very uh creepy and pam's put off like she's immediately terrified but as soon as she like starts talking to him he's like affable and like kind of a goof because he's talking with a puppet mm-hmm. and she's almost lulled he says you're you're gonna be fine okay oh, she's like please don't rape me and the thought of that startles him so hard that he just bursts out laughing because he's lost his sex drive at this point there's that's nowhere near his mind mm-hmm. and after she says that he's like pam it's good. We're all friends. We're cool. I just need to know one thing. I'm out of your hair. You'll be fine. Where's Rose? And that's when it clicks for Pam. Oh my God, this is Norman. And obviously she's heard most of the terrible things that he did to Rosie. So she's instantly aware of how much danger she is truly in. And that's when she surprises him and she makes a run for it. Yeah, she makes a run for it. But when he reaches for her and trips her up, she accidentally impales herself through the eye with the coat hook that's on the back of the door. And it is so hard to say that if your choices are impale yourself through the eyeball on a coat rack or death by Norman, she got off lucky. I Yeah. Ugh. But he pulls her off the door and snaps her neck. Because now she has become useless for him. And he does it like he's disposing of a tool. Like, well, this isn't any use. Breaks his toy and leaves. Uh, But not before finding the code to get into daughters and sisters. Back with Rosie, thank God. (laughs) We're going to take a break from Norman. We meet two new characters, Lieutenants Hale and Gustafson. What do you guys think of these guys? Mostly just Hale, because I don't even remember Gustafson doing anything. (laughs) Gustafson really, after this scene, kind of checks out for the rest of the book. But Hale, I like Hale Mm -hmm. in that he understands very quickly where Rosie's coming from and why she doesn't trust them. And he is so determined to say, we are not like that. I'm not only going to catch him. Because he is guilty and he's a bad person and hurting people, I'm going to catch him because he's a cop and because he's doing this. And you will be safe. 
This meeting and her finally walking into the police station took me back to, I think, our second chapter, Kindness of Strangers, where I said, please don't Mm -hmm. let this title be ironic. Yeah. I was like, please, she's been through enough. Please (laughs) let these characters be decent and thank God that they were. But yeah, he he is, they are uh, competent. And genuinely, genuinely willing to help. They, so. Yeah. And he also says, I think it's in this scene, that they're having trouble with Norman's precinct because they are still trying to protect him. But he right. says that once He's they- He's a hero cop. Yeah. Once they figure out that this is like, no, this guy's- Yeah. You guys can't do that. They're going to give in. I thought that Hale was going to be more instrumental. I thought he was going to play a bigger role, maybe like a cop later, but- no, we don't really see much of him after this. Um, we yeah. also got Rosie swearing for the first time. <laughs> On the way to the station, she calls Norman a fucking skunk and then punches the door. <laughs> I, I love this because, yeah, she just punt, lashes out and punches the door and the cops driving the car like, look back real quick and then very, very quickly avert their eyes. But uh, she's she's so angry, which I fucking love. Anytime Rosie shows this rage at Norman. I'm like, fuck <laughs> yes, this is well earned. I'm I'm so glad that she does not spend the last half of this book scared and yeah. whining and cringing. No, she's like, fuck this. Uh, to the fact point that when she punches the door and g- grabs her hands to to stop her and they talk and at a certain point, Rosie's like, okay, you can let go of my hands. And Kurt lets go. <laughs> and immediately she punches the door again, without even thinking about it. I love it. I love the speech that Gert gives her because Rosie is upset, not just for herself, but for everyone. She's saying he ruined the concert, the picnic. This is horrible. And Gert's like, who cares? We're going to move on. Yeah, he's one of the worst we've ever seen, but we've seen guys like this before. Mm-hmm. And we just... We just move on. We let it blow by us. We don't let it ruin our lives or our days. The woman who got tasered is saying this to her. Yeah, right. She's like, Gert, I love you. Well, yeah, because when she's like, oh, Gert, I'm so sorry this happened. And Gert's response is, shit, it was good for me. <laughs> Fuck, Gert is awesome. Gert is hardcore. Uh, anyway, as uh, Rosie is giving this long testimony to the cops, Norman heads to daughters and sisters does he have to i no. this Man. is the worst of it for me norman has had another one of his blackouts and he has come back to himself outside daughters and sisters and this is the first time that when he's come back to himself his first instinct is to feel for the mask and he feels almost panicked because he's not holding it mm-hmm. and he realizes that touching it gives him some ease and he decides Okay, I ruined their thing. They're all going to be back in the house. I'm going to storm in. I'm going to take hostages. And I'll kill one by one until I find the address. And when he goes in, quote, thankfully, the code he has works. He's about ready to take charge. And there's no one there. (laughs) Because he didn't actually ruin their entire day. He's so pissed. Because how dare they? How dare I not be the biggest fucking deal? And that's also very satisfying. Yeah. But any any point in this book that Norman gets all <laughs> like fucking butt hurt, uh, it's 
fantastic. <laughs> I have a question for you guys about Anna because so Norman is trying to find this information. He does see a, a letter that Anna has uh, postmarked to go out to Rosie, so it has her address on it, unfortunately. And while he's doing this, Anna comes home. Was Stephen King trying to make us less sympathetic to her right before she died? You know what I'm talking what about? What do you mean? Uh, I, I think I do know what you're talking about. Is it her fantasy? Um, Yeah, because, okay, as Anna comes home, she's coming home from Peter's uh, memorial service. And that she barely tolerated. <laughs> that she barely, and this whole like inner monologue that she has, she is just thinking about how fucking annoying this memorial service for her ex-husband was. She has this fantasy of being on Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine, and how uh, they they uh, call her the woman of what an, an American woman, the American woman, and it's very self-aggrandizing. Well, and I don't have a problem with the fantasy, but what mm-hmm. bothered me is that she was. In this fantasy, she is taking all the credit for mm-hmm. the gains that these women have made. And that the credit for that belongs to them. They are the ones, yes, yeah, she helped them, she guided them. But when someone's like in therapy or, or involved in something like that, they are the ones who actually have to put in all the hard work. So sure. for someone else to swoop in and, and take all of that glory and credit, it does, it's a little, um, not insulting, just it, it diminishes that person's therapeutic growth see i didn't get that impression the impression that i got was she is you can't call out all of those individual women who've made all of that growth into a single representation she is she is the representative of this house of the daughters and sisters like she is the focal point of it and i think the message is saying that she has like pretty much all of her money is built into this thing. She is being a beacon for support less than saying I healed all these women. But she literally says, basically I healed all these women. <laughs> she, <laughs> but, but I like but I that think, approach way better. <laughs> but I think she means because of what I created and I have built this support system that even though I'm not hands-on in every detail, everything in daughters and sister sisters does funnel through me and being a beacon towards um, lest I say a, a daughters and sisters franchise, like that kind of thing mm-hmm. and inspiring other groups like hers. And cause, because I find the way she's described it as kind of achievable, really. Uh, personally, I thought it was it was a fantasy. It's a personal fantasy. <laughs> uh, I love Anna Stevenson as a character, um, and I just I, I had that thought. He's kind of making her sound really hard, but she is. She's a yes. hardworking woman who's right. dedicated her life to this cause. Like, I don't. I don't mind the fantasy. Just you know, give, uh, give credit to the women but this who all leads, struggled fair, through that. Fair. But this all leads to her having her throat bitten out Ugh, by yeah. a man in a bull mask. That she, so when she grabs her, all she smells is Peter's cologne before she gets her throat ripped out. Leading up to this, the this kill when Norman first breaks into the house, 
he's walking through it and thinking about all of his shitty thoughts. And one of the things that he thinks is that the house is invaded with the smell of women and it makes him gag and it represents everything wrong with the oh it's so t-. and then the, the mask is like it's spaghetti sauce <laughs> and he's like oh yeah it's spaghetti sauce what a fucking wiener norman is what a fucking weak piece of shit i it drove me crazy this is why we glossed over norman Ugh. in the previous episodes <laughs> But now we get to where shit gets crazy. Yeah. As if it hasn't gotten crazy before. This is wild because Rosie and Bill and Gert, they finally leave the police station. Bill's going to take Rosie home and he's going to stay with her and Gert goes her separate way. And they Hale's like, okay, we already have a patrol at your house. You're going to be safe. We're going to watch over you. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to nail this guy. And they pull up to the curb. The way this happens, the way we kind of like jump back and forth between Norman and Rosie makes this next part so much more effective, in my opinion, because she's trying to unlock the front door and they they had walked past the patrol car and they see two cops and <laughs> the one just waves and she sees um, the street lamp glinting off his ring and his partner is kind of slumped like he's asleep. And a minute later, as she's starting to open the front door to the building, it occurs to her what that ring was. And we are back with Norman then. Again, like we're we're with him, but we're feeling Rosie and Bill's surprise at him sneaking up on them. It is so funny that you use the word effective. Mm. Um, because literally Bill, as they're walking to the door, Bill waves at the cop and the cop waves back. And immediately I wrote the note, that's 100% Norman, Me right? too. That's 100% the note. Like, as soon as the ring glinted, I was like, that's Norman. And it, it was obvious it was Norman. But we didn't get how he, like, okay, it is Norman. How is he in this cup car? That's, yeah. Because we also, we're we're jumping back and forth. Like, we we glumped, clumped it all together, Rosie's time at the police station. But it actually mm. jumps between the Pam and the Anna thing where she's back at the police station. And so we don't know where they are in their respective timelines. Yeah. And it, it seems like he shouldn't be there that quickly. Yeah, they keep updating, like, what time each event is happening and it is very disorienting so when they do show up together it's like oh shit it that the last thing that happened happened longer ago than it seemed and so this is a point in my notes where (laughs) i i kind of jumped the gun a little bit i'm like ask ben what he thinks about the end of the book (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh all right okay well because from this point on i feel like we're in you know the final act and it's just, in my opinion, an insane wild ride. <laughs> yes, I completely agree. The action, uh, especially the action in the apartment building, is fucking edge of your seat. Let's talk about how Norman got into that police car. May first. I? Yes. <laughs> so uh, this, I want to talk about this because it brings up a note that I made. So he... Knows there's going to be patrols. He spotted them easily because he's a detective. He's a cop. And the bull tells him to fake a heart attack to lure the two cops out towards him so he can kill them quietly and stage this whole scene. He's already got this plan figured out. The cops fall for his fake heart attack and come to him. 
King himself has said that he refers to Rose Matter as a uh, try too hard novel. Really? Yes. And this scene in particular is where I felt the try too hard because we have to hear about how this one cop, he sees him and refers to him as the Beave for like a page and a half for literally no reason. That's our other type of Stephen King moments. <laughs> yes. The, there's so there's so much, especially in the Norman sections where Norman beats a dead horse for so long. And he he's lured these cops in. He stabs the old cop in the throat. The young cop freaks out the beef freaks out and has no idea what to do and norman knocks out the kid and then if i recall uh, he strangles the kid mm-hmm. right yeah or he he slams his head like he uppercuts him he slams his head yes. against the iron railing and then he slams it against his knee so he kills him yeah with his own body <laughs> he blunt force traumas the beef to death and then the old cop is trying to walk away with the Letter opener. letter opener sticking out of his throat and Norman just grabs him and he's like, hey, hey, no, it's fine. It's fine. Let's just let's head back to the car. It'll, it'll be fine. I, I assume that like that guy is so disoriented. He's just like, oh, yeah, OK. But and he walks him back to the car. This is nuts, though, because it's the first and only time Norman is sympathetic to another human being. Oh, he's not being sympathetic at all. It, no, not his actions when he's he's like, oh, you know what? Too bad I had to kill this guy because this cop seems like someone I could be partners with. Yeah. He's, you know, he's he looks like he's on it. And he's yeah, dead. he's really uh, bummed about having to kill another cop. Yeah, that's the most interesting part of this section. The idea of killing a cop. I mean, he's killed multiple people at this point, but he doesn't see them as people. He doesn't think of them as people. But now that he's killed a cop, he has this brief thought of like, wow, I'm a cop killer. That's the in Norman's head. That's the worst thing you can be. And it wasn't even the beef, though. It was this particular cop. Mm -hmm. It's so weird, guys. We we I think we misspoke actually because Norman didn't kill the cops. The bull. The bull killed the cops. Yeah, because it's not Norman's fault. The the idea, the the idea of killing, being a cop killer, is as terrible as everything he's done. That's the thing that is so terrible in his head that he won't admit to it, Mm -hmm. even to himself. And then we get a small aside after he staged the scene that his jaws and teeth still hurt from Anna. Once he's set the scene, time jumps for him again, and all of a sudden his hands are around Bill's throat in the dark entryway of this apartment building. Things happen really fast during this next part. Josh, you mentioned we come back, and all of a sudden his hands are around Bill's throat. He's threatening him. Rosie is screaming at him. She goes towards the choking sounds and it's dark. So she can't see what she's doing and shoves Norman off of him with like this crazy strength that she didn't know she had. She, she feels the armband burning into her rose matter gave her. She's not wearing it. She does not have it. (laughs) She's also forgotten that she's not wearing it. Yes. (laughs) She thinks she's wearing it. (laughs) She grabs him by the coat and literally throws him across the room. Then she practically carries bill up the steps with that Mm. one arm with the not armlet on it. And she almost impales Norman with a coat hanger because he's <laughs> he's crawling up the steps towards her, which is my worst nightmare. Somebody crawling at me, dark or light, 
Don't like it <laughs> one bit. And he grabs her ankle and she kicks him with her other leg right in the face. It's a beautiful moment. And then throws, you know, pushes the coat hanger over. He gets tangled up in it in a way that I just loved every second yeah. of. <laughs> just the image of him falling down the stairs mm-hmm. is great. And so the coat hanger slows him down. He basically has to break out of the coat hanger. Then she fumbles her key and Norman gets his hands on Bill again. And <laughs> the, holy shit. <laughs> the best thing that happens in the book where Rosie almost tears his jaw off <gasps> with her bare hands. Awesome! Because she she's reaching for Bill and she finds the mask because uh, Norman is wearing the mask. It's not pulled mask. down all the way. So. Yeah, and so she feels it and as soon as Norman feels her hand, he goes and bites her fingers to the bone. And I honestly thought she was going to bite her fingers off. But... <laughs> It was her left hand, Mm -hmm. the hand with the armlet, and she grabs his jaw and pulls it out, quote, like a drawer. (laughs) Got it! (laughs) (laughs) Wow! That is, I I thought she was going to rip it fully off, and he was going to spend the end of the book chasing after her like fucking twisty the clown from american horror story oh what if she'd ripped his lower jaw off and he pulled the mask down but could still talk perfectly because the mask. Uh, we should write a book <laughs> <laughs> so norman pulls ferd over his lower face to hold his yeah, jaw together after, after, pop- after yes yeah. he has to i i I couldn't. I couldn't deal with this Yeah, part. he pops his jaw back into place, and it still oh. feels loose. Like if he yawned, it would fall off. Blah. He, I love the He says his teeth felt like satellites because they were outside of him <laughs> in that fashion. I, and I fucking love it. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, Norman shoots a guy. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, her... Her nosy neighbor, some dumbass is like, hey, is someone ripping jaws off down here? And then he gets shot. Uh, Every time I hear a loud noise from now on, I'm going to enter a room and say that. Somebody getting their jaw ripped off? Someone ripping jaws off down here? So Rosie and Bill get into the apartment and Norman is, meanwhile, putting himself back together and then he's going to try to break through the store. And Rosie goes to the closet. There's a light coming from underneath the door that is not the closet, you know, light bulb. What did you guys think of Bill's very reasonable reaction to seeing the closet door open and there's just another world right there? I think it was uh, pretty... I only asked that because her her response to that, I was like, oh. She refers to him as he was pitiful in his hurt and confusion. He's like a dumb creature, but then she feels this fierce like sense of protection and love for him and basically thinks, I'll die protecting him if I have to. It was, I, it, it's like she is already, she hasn't even stepped through this painting again yet, but she is becoming Rose Matter. It's a great hero moment for her. Mm-hmm. This also has, uh, this scene has one of my favorite lines in this entire book. <laughs> when they hear Norman throwing his body against the door and she says, Rooming house, uh, rooming house doors were not built to withstand insanity. 
<laughs> like, yeah, that is what is happening. What's really cool is that we get all of that, again, from Norman's perspective. We don't have to talk about it, but I I just want to point it out because while reading, basically rereading these scenes again, I was not bored. No, It was God, very no, well done. Well, it was especially interesting. The most interesting things that I found from Norman's perspective, one was the coat rack, surprisingly enough hearing him so angry about being so tangled in it he couldn't get out until he finally had to snap and he was like, god damn coats and crawls up the stairs but then also hearing about like i said him having to reset his jaw and the initial reason that he pulls the mask all the way down is so that it holds it in place oh that was a pretty cool touch which also leads to another very cool unsettling thing is once he breaks in Rosie and Bill have ran into the closet. And once he discovers the closet open into another world, which he just is like, par for the course, my man. (laughs) He goes, uh, he's staring into the painting and notes that uh, he can only see out of one eye of the mask. Yes. Uh, Oh, and also the mask won't come off, which. And he feels like if he scrapes his nails against it, it will bleed because it has become his skin. Ugh. And he kind of panics about that, but... For a second. You know, it's furred. They're good pals. <laughs> uh, yeah, he re- he refers to it as an improbable vista. And I thought that was probably the most sophisticated thing we've ever heard Norman think. <laughs> but I love that. That's, yeah, that his reaction is just, all right, they must have gone there. I've already shot a shower curtain. They weren't there. So I'm going to go in. All, it's so crazy. He is so fixated on getting his revenge for Rosie leaving him. He follows her into another world. Also, did you notice that uh, when he breaks down the door and he's moving through, it says, uh, I believe the phrase they use is that he charged through the apartment. Once he has that mask, all of his physical descriptions of his actions become way more animalistic, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really subtle way to bring that transformation through. And in our very first scene with him, like when the book opens, she describes him as almost Mm bull-like too. So I I don't know, going back to that, is the supernatural thing, part of me wants to think it is because it's kind of always been there. So we are back in this world. Rosie, uh, Wendy meets Dorcas meets (laughs) Rosie and Bill. She leads them to um, the temple there. They go to this sort of secluded spot on the side of it. There's the wagon and she's like, put this stuff on. She's basically dressing her just like Rose Matter and bossing Bill around like crazy, which I think (laughs) Ben, we, we talked last episode because you're like, is Bill kind of a shithead sometimes? And I had a lot of sympathy for him. And I think it's because of this, definitely he is a child from the the, for the rest of Mm -hmm. this encounter he is out of his death yeah Yeah, and he even says is this a dream this is a dream right and she's like yeah it's a dream and she has this coldness (laughs) and this authority in her voice that she has never heard before she is becoming more and more like rose matter as she is dressing in this gown and and sort of becoming like her and this sort of leads to an interesting Thing when Norman first lays eyes on her in this other world, he notices three things. One is that she changed her clothes. Two, she colored her hair because this is the first time he's laid eyes on her. It was dark before. And three, she was beautiful. 
and in my head, I'm like, bullshit. He's not going to notice she changed her clothes in here. Like nobody, <laughs> no guy notices that. <laughs> but then it comes back later when he sees Rose matter. Because if he hadn't seen Rosie that way, he mm. might not have thought that was her. Exactly. Okay, so Wendy tells Rose, she's in there. She's waiting for you guys. You have to lead him there. She will take care of it. If he catches you, you're dead. Like she, she can't help you. So stay ahead of him. So let's talk about Norman venturing into the temple. Rosie in this portion does my favorite thing. And that is just constantly shit talking Norman (laughs) to taunt him into following Dorcas stays with Bill so that Rosie can do all this. Mm -hmm. And the, the note that I made was she's using all these things to taunt him. And the note I made was, if she only knew how angry he was about the bank card, that's really all she would have had to say. Yeah. I've got your bank card or something like <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> speaking of before, before uh, she starts taunting him and Norman fully like begins his chase, uh, I did want to bring up the moment that I guess all human king villains have to have. You mean Ozzy's the bat? Uh, oh, God, I forgot about that. No, no. Uh, the the Harold Lauder moment that uh, he has outside of the temple as he's walking down the hill, he has the thought his his practical sensible the voice of his shithole abusive dad says, "Turn, you don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. You can call this even. You can walk away." And he almost does. Why bother? So, it, self-preservation. No, I mean, I mean, why bother for... The, the character is already so far gone. I feel like this moment is put there to try and give... To try and make what horrible things happen to him acceptable to us, the reader. But that it was we already go, acceptable. <laughs> well, exactly. That's exactly yeah. it. Is like, he's already so far beyond that. Why did he have to be like, oh, I tried to give this character an out, but then he chose his horrible fate. He already did that a long time ago. That's very true. Why I, bother trying to humanize him at I, this point? I guess I kind of saw it as more of um, kind of like a taunt from his father almost. Like yeah. having this voice inside his head is not a good thing. It's not a pleasant experience for him. So I don't even think he's trying to preserve himself. I just think that it's another, you know, just shitty part of Norman that is going to cause suffering and continue this cycle of poor decisions. Sure. My favorite thing about this portion of the taunts that I want to touch on real quick, uh, as I've stated, I'm listening to the audiobook version of Rose Matter. Which, thanks to Bryant Burnett, I just found out that the Norman section is read by Stephen King. Whoa! Yeah, Stephen King's the voice actor <laughs> for the Norman side of things. Gonna and it, have to listen. As yeah, soon as I heard it, it all clicked, and I was like, holy shit, he's so good. So mm. good at it. Uh, which is crazy, because I've not heard good things about him reading his own books, but I thought he was great as Norman. So something very interesting here, because we hear Rosie do her taunts to lure him. But then when we're back with Norman, we hear those same taunts. And the way they did them in the audiobook is that Rosie, when she gives them, they are full of confidence and power. And when Norman does them, he reads them with this whiny and mocking uh-huh. tone. And I just thought that was a great 
like duality of how he treats anything she says. I thought that was fantastic. I just wanted to point out how great I thought that was. Oh, and we touch on something else, Ben, that you last you asked last episode when he comes up to the the temple. Ah, yeah. The stone statue is the face of his father. Yeah. So it, the temple is psychically linked to the individual. Also, uh, the reason I brought this up at all is when what finally convinces him uh, to go all in is when he comes to the door above the door. Uh, oh. It says, <laughs> uh, what does it say? Something about the bank card. Yeah. It's like, he, she stole your bank card, Norman. And he's like, <laughs> but it's, it's given all proverby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and right. so she, he uh, charges into the door and, Tears a bat in half with his with bare his, hands. With his mouth. Oh, does he, does oh, he yeah. bite it? Yeah. Okay. As I said, he has, he's a bat. Yep. And Rosie is staying ahead of him. She keeps, she's leading him through all, all the stuff that we have seen on her journey. And like I said before, he spots her. Um, she makes her way across the stream, slips, and he sees how terrified she is when she almost falls into the stream. And so he's very careful not to touch the water. She comes to the clearing, the tree, mm. and Rose Matter is there with her back to her. Oh, hold on. There is one thing that happens before that. The little boy statue. The little naked oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, the, the little boy <laughs> statue that she had seen before, it grabs her by the wrist as Norman sees her, as he's charging across the stream. He sees her being grabbed by the statue. And for a split second, you're like, uh-oh. But... Rosie just obliterates a stone yep. statue she, with her bare hand. She falcon punches <laughs> yes. through the stone. And its head explodes, and it's, it's awesome. But also leads to this very, uh, very intense part, because after that, she says, Norman's right on her heels, and from here on, it's a foot chase. Mm-hmm. Except not really, because she just fucking... Easily outpaces him, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And it's cool because she she reaches Rose Matter first, and Rose Matter tells her, "You might want to listen to this. You can even watch if you want, but you definitely yeah. want to listen." And Rosie's like, oh, "I don't know. You have these marks. You know, I think I think he's going to know it's not me." And she's like, "No, because he's blind like the bull. Yeah, the bull is blind." So Rosie goes to the entrance of the um the maze the maze and she places herself on the steps so they are out of sight from one another and this is where it goes all revival yes (laughs) yes yes oh man uh we finally see rose matter's face and i did put that uh no norman charges into the clearing and sees Rose Matter, who he thinks is Rosie, and she's just sitting facing away from him, just calm as can be. And he's screaming at her and just yelling, face me, I'm going to talk to you. Come on, this is, you're dead. And she's just casually picking up fruit and popping them in her hand as he walks up behind her. And finally, she turns around. Is it okay if I just read this description? Yes. I'm sorry. Do. I just have read to. It. So when she turns around and she's like, the bull's going to die. We're divorced of you. Fuck off. 
And he starts to come back with some stupid Norman comet, and he has stopped dead cold when the moonlight reveals her face. He shrieks. He's so terrified that he doesn't even know he's doing it. He starts firing the gun into the ground, and then it falls out of his hand. He claps his hands to his face, and he's screaming and trying to back away, and he can barely stand. His legs won't move. She responds to his scream with one of her own, which is terrifying. And here's how she's described. Rot swarmed across the upper swell of her bosom. Her neck was as purple-black as that of a strangulation victim. The skin had cracked open in places and was oozing thick tears of yellow pus. This is kind of reminding me of of Pet cemetery. Yet these signs of some far-advanced and obviously terminal disease weren't what brought the screams raking out of his throat and bolting from his mouth in howling spates. They were not what broke through the eggshell surface of his insanity to let in a more terrible reality— like the unforgiving light of an alien sun. Her face did that. It was the face of a bat, in which had been set the bright mad eyes of a rabid fox. It was the face of a supernaturally beautiful goddess, seen in an illustration hidden within some old and dusty book like a rare flower in a weedy vacant lot. It was the face of his rose, whose looks had always been lifted just slightly beyond plainness by the timid hope in her eyes and the slight, wistful curve of her mouth at rest. Like lilies on a dangerous pond, these differing aspects floated on the face which turned toward him, and then they blew away, and Norman saw what lay beneath. It was a spider's face, twisted with hunger and crazy intelligence. The mouth that opened gave upon a repellent blackness afloat with silk tendrils, to which hundreds of bugs and beetles stuck fast, some dead and some dying. Its eyes were great bleeding eggs of rose matter red that pulsed in their sockets like living mud. And then... She, like, spider arms start poking out of her body and grab him and pull him towards her. And he goes from being the biter to the bitten, as it says. Yes. (laughs) Fuck. So, yes. It it reminded me a lot of Revival. Yes. So that's what I was, my two thoughts were, okay, is she an it or is she a mother from Revival? I think she she seemed like a mother. She's almost. a mother. She, yeah. she reminded me the most of the thing that lies beyond mm-hmm. that came out of the cracked sky in the end mm. of Revival. So much fun. <laughs> yeah, especially the 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 beetles and bugs stuck in her teeth. Reminded me of all the dead, mm-hmm. the 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 dead walking in the endless line. Ah, fucking scary! That's <laughs> so fucking scary. Meanwhile, Rose has been Rosie's been listening to this, just and- endless screaming. That's all she hears is just the insane terror from Norman. Until it stops. She has, and she has to remind herself that it's Norman that's screaming, so she doesn't have to feel bad for yeah, it. Well, before this happened, uh, before, as she was, like, walking down the stairs, she's, she even she told a Rose Matter, or maybe she thought it, she's like, part of her really wanted Norman dead. Uh-huh. Well, no shit. <laughs> like, I think you've earned that, Rosie. Uh, but yeah, even then she's like, okay, it's, he deserves this. But it, I can't imagine 
hearing the dying screams. Yeah. Him being ripped apart and eaten. Blech. Here's where it it gets a little weird, if as if it hasn't already. She comes up and there are Norman pieces <laughs> lying around, and Rose is taking seeds and putting them into Norman parts, and she says that she's seeding him, picks his body up, and tosses it down the stairs. Where something might grow. <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> it's a dark maze. It's it's a it's a loop. It's uh Ka is a circle. He will become the next Aranis. Uh, Arrhenius. Shit, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? The next one will be called Arrhenius. Oh, th- okay, that don't, makes sense. Don't worry about it. But yeah, that's what kind of what I figured is like, I don't know, That's it's more of a, a literary uh, idea that I, I, I got the feeling like this is a cycle somehow, I, I, I don't know, that sure. somehow this has happened before and will happen again. Interesting. I don't know. Well, she uh, gives her the ominous tip of remember the tree, which for some reason, Rosie has a hard time figuring out what that means for the rest of the book, despite the fact that I immediately wrote down she has seeds at home. Uh, but uh, And then Dorcas gives her a, a small vial and tells her to give Bill a drop of it when they get back. Uh, a vial that is full of the water from that river so that Bill can forget. And Rose Matter gives Rosie Norman's ring and basically says, do with this whatever you want. It's yours now. And Rose Rose Matter calls Bill a beast. And Rosie, the way she talks about her, she says that Rosie infers that as like a lustful tone. Mm. But to me, that seemed just like that was hungry. Like she was thinking is about there, eating Bill. Is there a difference? Well, she, we she calls, no for Rose Matter. Oh, she's a weird. So. She's a weird alien <laughs> goddess. Like I, I thought, we were unpacking a fetish. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> she calls him a a pretty man too. Yeah. yeah. So it, I think it was lust and hunger. Yeah. And Rosie's like, get your fucking hands off him. Do not call it's, him a beast. And she looks her in the face. It's so badass. It is one of the more badass things Rosie has done because Ed Norman's terrifying. He is awful. He is the worst thing to happen to her. He represents 14 years of a terrible life. But like I just said, Rose matter is a crate is an insane bug goddess. <laughs> and she's just like, Hey, fuck you. Leave my man alone. And it's like, well, damn. Okay. And anyway, I love that. Dorcas is behind her wincing like, oh, don't say that to her. <laughs> I just, I had to kind of giggle a little bit at that. Yeah. So Rose Matter's like, okay, we're cool. And it's interesting when Rosie sees her face, she doesn't see what Norman sees, obviously. She sees her face, but haggard and rotting and black. And, and she sees that there's insanity, or there's madness beneath that layer. She knows there's another layer underneath that. She sees something of, because she, when she describes her mouth as opening onto something unnatural, and she, I think she sees something of her true face behind. And she had asked her, are you me? Mm-hmm. What did you guys think about her response? Her response of, don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> I'm old and tired. I don't have time yeah, to answer the stupid exactly. question. <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay. Uh, based off of that, uh, this is purely speculative and doesn't really go anywhere, but I want to <laughs> ask if Rose, if Rosie didn't look like Rosie, would the painting of Rose Matter looked different? What? What's, di- what's different about them is the hair basically from the, from jump street. That's the only difference between sure. them physically. Uh-huh. Let's say Rosie physically looked completely different. Would the painting of Rose Matter looked different? I think so. Cause I think she, they're, I assume they're twinners because I assume yeah, it's I, kind of illusionary. No, I oh, don't No, I didn't no. take it as, I see where you're coming from. I, yeah. I, cause I, I, they're twinners. They're, if she would have, I don't think that question means anything. No, well, no, no offense. I, like, no, I, I guess what I'm saying is, can she be a twinner and a mother? Like, can she uh, be? Can she uh, be? Yes. Can your twinner be a magical, like yeah. elder um, god? Yeah, I think so. Because uh, she's. It's not just the looks that are similar. There are personality traits that they share, and and things in Rosie that we know exist. We get glimpses of that are very Rose matter. Also, I don't think twinners necessarily mean that you look like twins. Uh, of course, it's been forever since I've read uh, The Talisman, so I can't think of any examples. But I'm I'm almost certain that there are twinners who don't even look alike, but who are, in essence, the mirror images of each other. Gotcha. All right, that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Readers, if I am completely <laughs> wrong, please please let us know. So they are about to make their way back home, and Rose Matter's like, you know what? On second thought, Bill, yeah, he looks pretty good. And Bill has been quiet this whole time. He's not looked at her, and he's like, you know, thank you, ma'am. And she's like, you're right. And he's like, well, I sure will, because I know what happens when you don't. And for some reason, that sets her off. And she starts, she is like screaming at her. She's like, get him out of here now and give me what's mine, you bitch. And Rosie takes the armlet and she flings it at her and they take off. She sees shadows of uh, bristly spider Mm -hmm. hands coming off of her as she runs. When they get back, no or very little time has passed. The neighbor is still screaming about being shot. So Bill goes to check on the neighbor. Rosie calls Lieutenant Hale Gets off the phone very quickly, grabs a, a soda, puts a drop of the water in it. And when Bill comes yeah. back in, because he had been choked and his throat's rough, she's like, here, drink this. It'll help. So when Lieutenant Hale gets there to question them, Bill's kind of like, I don't remember anything after being choked. And Lieutenant Hale can sense that something's not right. But he also knows that they're both really good people. And he doesn't feel like they've done something they mm. shouldn't do. He just knows that things aren't lining up. Yeah, he he thinks something is wrong, but then he's like, nah, they're just in love. Here's the weird. (laughs) This is a weird disconnect that I didn't like that. Rosie goes on about how annoying it is that Hale wants to keep going over this over and over. Two of his fellow cops are dead outside. Like this has hit home for him. And also the guy that did it is just is gone. gone. Like, he, yeah, they, and she's you, like, God, it's so annoying. He keeps wanting to talk about yeah, this thing. You know why that is though? Because she's already forgotten the tree. Rosie huh? comes out of there messed up. Yeah, sure. And sure. this, I think it's like, I think she's being shitty about this because it's already affecting her. Okay, well, then we should definitely get to the epilogue and and discuss what that means. 
And the last thing before the epilogue is we should talk about is Rosie remembers she has three seeds uh, from the tree. And she flushes two of them down the toilet and then can't get rid of the third one. So she puts it in a uh, the bottom of her purse. With the ring. With the ring and goes about her life. Goes about her life for like four or five years mm-hmm. because she and Bill, they get married. They have a daughter. They name her after all the people that have and haven't died. <laughs> Pamela Gertrude. <laughs> Pamela Gertrude Steiner. Rosie, uh, oh, she destroys the painting. Mm-hmm. She and puts says, it in the incinerator. Uh, she thinks, she hears the voice of Rose Matter saying, remember the tree. And she thinks, I don't have to remember fucking anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she doesn't for a while, which is unfortunate because she is changed. She is marked from this experience. And that is shown to us in the form of this barely controlled rage in her just simmering under the surface. There's one scene where she and Bill get into a bit of an argument because they both like different houses they're looking at. Mm -hmm. And she storms off into the kitchen. She's boiling a pot of water for corn. And he comes in and he's, you know, trying to apologize. And she just envisions herself taking the pot of boiling water and throwing it in his face and how his skin would blister and melt off. And she can't even respond to him because she is trying to control that urge so, so hard. She also fantasizes about killing Rhoda when From Rhoda work. tells her, hey, you know, stop, you're you're done for the day. And she doesn't want to be done. And she's just kind of losing it. She's uh, going to the batting cages and she's hitting balls through nets, like making holes in the nets. Yeah, I, I was very confused. I wasn't. By this, but okay. I want to hear about that because <laughs> I, I while I was reading this, it goes on and it's it starts off by documenting a what seems like could be the happily ever ever after, and then and this is like literally the last what ten pages mm-hmm. of the book, and it's very sudden, and I was confused because this had this. Sorry for the pun. This seed has not been planted earlier in the book. There was no indication that she was going to go crazy. I was like, what is this trying to say? uh, The thing that I kept having a problem with is she kept saying she had to repay. I thought we were square after that. Yeah. That that was the deal. Save the baby. I kill your husband. We're square. But apparently there's still more debt to be settled because she keeps being haunted by remember the tree and you must repay. So I, I want to hear your, your uh, views on this. I'm going to try to articulate this as best I can. I'm going to fail. When I read this as a teenager, I was at that like hormonal stage in life when I could imagine a bill and how wonderful a bill would be and how in love you'd be. And I was alarmed and confused and scared when I was reading these parts about Rosie having this nearly uncontrollable rage And then I got a little bit older and I was with someone who was abusive. And I've read this book four times now. And it was after that relationship that I went back to this book and I read it again and I got it completely. There, as a woman, I'm just going to tell you guys this, you might not realize it. Women, there's things you guys just will never know. Oh, I completely understand that. 
I, I You're telling me I don't understand <laughs> women, CM? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking it, shock of the century. <laughs> it's just that she's, and I say that because she, Bill is forgotten because she's given him these drops and she's had to do it periodically. She had enough that over the years when he starts to have nightmares or things seem like they're coming through, she makes him forget again. But she carries the weight of all of this and she remembers. So now, instead of being the shared experience that they had, this is her secret. This is a thing that they will die eventually and he will have never known this really important, like fundamental thing about her. That makes complete sense. Like I said, at first, like when I first finished the book, I put it down and was like, I don't know how I felt about that, but I have been thinking about this for the past few days and I love it. Um, because the, the end of the book, she has these blind rages and the way she, uh, at the very end, she finally remembers the tree and she takes the seed and she takes it back to where Bill first took her on their first date and she plants it at the base of the fox's tree. And every year during the spring, she comes back and she meditates at the base of this tree that she knows is poison. She knows that the fruit that grow from it will kill people horribly. But she comes back and she meditates on all the things that she knows and all of these terrible things. But uh, the, the, the rages. It releases her. It releases mm-hmm. her. And the thing that made me made it kind of click for me is the Babadook. Oh, all right. Have you guys seen? You've I seen the Babadook. Seen I have it. I have uh, the Papa book. You have a Duke book, book right? <laughs> I have oh, the next, album. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, spoiler alerts for the movie The Babadook. Oh, damn it. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen it. So, the whole movie, there's this monster, the Babadook. And at the very end, spoiler alert, it's just trauma. It's, it's a metaphor. The Babadook isn't real. It's real in the movie. But the whole thing is a metaphor for grief. And in the end of the movie, she keeps the Babadook in the basement and she visits it. And her life is better, but by visiting the Babadook, it is dealing with the grief on her terms in a healthy way. That's what the tree is. Because you sometimes, if you try to forget that pain and you push it away, you don't make those connections to... Mm -hmm the responses that you're having to it and how to heal. So you kind of like, there is a good way to embrace those horrible things, to embrace that pain, those memories and not just try to forget them. Yeah. Guys, that just blew my goddamn mind. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's, it took me a minute, but uh, it's, it's a fantastic ending. All right. That, that brings us to the end of Rose matter. Let's say we go around the table and rate this beast. Oh, five out of, (laughs) you know what? 10 out of five. (laughs) Blue chambray shirts. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a scale for that. As uh, <laughs> no one is surprised yeah. that CM would rate her favorite book of all time. Uh, what would you guys have done if I'd been like, I'm going to give it a three? <laughs> uh, I think we would have had to end the podcast. Yeah, that would have been it. Uh, so five out of five. I, it is... Okay, I uh, put an asterisk by my, uh, by my score here. I won't. It is a fantastic book. Uh, but I read it during some tough times personally, so I couldn't – it was kind of hard to get through for me. It's so intense. It is so, so emotionally hard um, that it, it did 
it was harder for me to read than other books have been. So four out of a solid four out of five. Uh, but I, I can't give it a four perfect score. Five. Blue chambray shorts. Uh, blue chambray <laughs> shorts. shorts, of course. Wait, that's a that's, Canadian tuxedo. <laughs> that's a... Uh, Blue chambray shorts for a fun summer read. <laughs> it's five blue chambray shirts, but only four blue yeah, chambray no. shorts. Uh, yeah. four, the asterisk. Four out of five blue chambray shirts. My mind has been blown. Not only talking about this, but I, as we've been covering this, I've I've learned so much about the uh, the outside factors. Of this book, like hearing Stephen King talk about this book and and his his opinion on it. And while there are those sections that I feel like Norman just goes on and on about things that don't matter, and that was a little bit tough to read, I feel like it built, it, it added to his character being so annoyed being in his head. Uh, I don't know if I'm just projecting that or if that was the intention, mm-hmm. but that's how it came across to me. And uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and give this a five out of five blue chambray shirts. I really, really dug this book. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you so much for listening. Join us for our next episode as we do something I'm very excited about because we've been talking about it for a while. We are gonna take a little break from fancy book reading, and we are going to do a three-part series on the miniseries Rose Red. If you have not seen this, it is kind of hard to find uh, to buy on DVD, but you can find it on YouTube. Uh, watch it. We are going to have a, a little watch party and do some episodes on it. I'm very excited about it. So, for Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Khan reminding you, please, don't let me be what I'm afraid of. <laughs> Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thanks for listening to part three of Rose Matter. I would love to know how many blue chambray shirts you'd give this book. I know I've gone on and on and on about how it's my favorite, but don't let that change your opinion. You won't hurt my feelings. As long as you give it, oh, I don't know, like five blue chambray shirts. Before I leave you, a sincere shout out to all of our supporters. Our newest Patreon member, Lyndon Gordon, thank you so much for your support. As I read this, Josh is on his way to the studio with your package. We hope you like it. And thank you to the following patrons who have continued to support us month after month. You all mean the world to us. Alicia Lillian, Bill Graham, Bryant Burnett, Jennifer Dolge, Jeremy Marr, Casey Bauer, Lisa Khan, Matt Kendall, Phil, you beautiful, amazing angel of a person. Yep, that's his full name. Reed Flynn, Renaissance Bear Pictures, Spanky, our favorite emailer, Tammy Ann Fala, Tony Rizzo, and Tori Lynn Akami. Without all of you, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. As always, if you want to support us but Patreon isn't your thing, we'd love it if you would rate and review us on iTunes. It keeps us visible there to new listeners. Follow us on social media, Dairy Public Radio. Email us at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. Check out our website, constantreaders.org where we publish all things Stephen King and Stephen King related, including some amazing work from you. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.